Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioH Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioH. Today, we're joined by Dr. Nicholas Hertz, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Mitokinin, a company devoted to developing disease-modifying therapies for the form of age-related neurodegeneration known as Parkinson's disease. We talk with quite a few founders on this podcast, but this one is different because he's at a very different stage of the startup life cycle, the exit. On October 5th, yesterday, as of this recording, pharma giant AbbVie announced that they have acquired Mitokinin. So in addition to discussing the fascinating science behind Mitokinin and the details of the drug development program, we're going to talk about what happens when a startup is acquired by another entity and it's time to hand over the reins and move on to the next exciting thing. Nick, it's great to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's been a long time in coming, right? <laughs> Definitely. I want to talk to you about how you became a founder and the story of Mitokinin. But first, I want to do a little bit of biology review because I feel like the biology is going to inform the subsequent part of the conversation. So could you explain in fairly general terms what PINK1 is and the role that it plays in mitochondrial biology? It starts from the endosymbiotic theory of life where basically one cell ate another cell, that larger cell being our cells essentially, and the smaller cell being a mitochondria and incorporating those two into you know, what are now eukaryotes today. What PINK1 does in very general terms is signal if those mitochondria inside of your cells have gone bad, are essentially no longer able to function normally. Upon When that happens, PINK1 is stabilized on the surface of those damaged mitochondria as a signal to clear away those sort of bad mitochondria before they can release proteins that could cause the entire cell to die. I see. And just a little bit more biology review, what a mitochondrion does is makes ATP, makes energy for the cell. And bad mitochondrion isn't doing that anymore, and it's taking up space and risking further damage to the cell. And a good mitochondrion is consuming carbon and making energy for the cell. And we want there to be more good mitochondria and fewer bad mitochondria in general, right? Exactly. Okay. So pink one helps to clear damaged mitochondria. Now I want to connect this to the aging-related aspect of what you're working on. So are damaged mitochondria thought to play a role in Parkinson's disease? Yes, exactly. So this is connected through many different experiments. I think some of the most compelling experiments, though, are the human experiment. It actually happened in San Francisco as well, at the San Francisco uh, Veterans Hospital, where a person showed up with what looked like Parkinson's. It was the clinical definition of Parkinson's, because when they gave that person more L-DOPA, which is it's a precursor to dopamine, which is basically a treatment for Parkinson's, because Parkinson's is when your body's no longer able to produce dopamine. When this person showed up and was given L-DOPA, they were able to overcome their symptoms. So they had clinical Parkinson's and yet they were very young. And so, you know, the doctors asked what happened. And this person said, well, I was synthesizing these drugs and injecting myself with them. And they discovered that one of those drugs that this person was injecting themselves with was actually a mitochondrial toxin. So it directly tied an exposure to a mitochondrial toxin with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And I think that was a really compelling sort of initial finding which then suggested to people that recovering mitochondrial health could be a way to treat Parkinson's. I know that Parkinson's, like other forms of neurodegeneration, is associated with the accumulation of toxic protein aggregates and other proteotoxic species in the cell. So 
Is it the same protein aggregates that are thought to drive Parkinson's that are causing the damage to the mitochondria in these dopaminergic cells in the brain? The connection there is clear and opaque at the same time. So what we learned since we saw that patient who was injecting himself with mitochondrial toxins is that environmental exposure to pesticides, other things that are mitochondrial toxins, also causes symptoms of Parkinson's. And what was also discovered then in the early 2000s was that two different genes, uh, Parkin and Pink1, basically were genetically linked to Parkinson's, in which, and you can imagine Parkin, the name kind of belies that, where mutations that led to loss of function of Parkin led to early onset Parkinson's disease. And then Pink1 was discovered after that in 2004. And so those two genes were found to have this role in mitochondrial clearance of uh, the clearance of, of uh, bad mitochondria, known as mitophagy. So that was the first finding that connected the genetics of, of uh, mitochondrial dysfunction with Parkinson's. And then the next part of this is, is actually a gene that's been known for much longer, which is synuclein. So synuclein is the, is the protein that aggregates and is found in the brains of Parkinson's patients as a major symptom, but it can only until recently be detected post-mortem. The connection between those two was actually something that was initially understood by an early collaborator of mine in Kavons at, at UCSF, uh, Ken Nakamura. What he found is that overexpression of synuclein would actually drive directly mitochondrial dysfunction. So therefore, connecting this very common aggregate we see in Parkinson's patient brains with this other connection through mitochondria and kind of linking the two. However, all of this work was, was really not well elucidated and understood when I first started working on Pink One. And so part of the work that we did was also to connect the genetic form of Parkinson's, you know, Parkin Pink One mutations, to the major uh, phenotypic readout in, in Parkinson's patients, which is aggregation of synuclein. And so, you know, we did a lot of experiments around that to show directly that these synuclein aggregates could actually cause mitochondrial dysfunction. And, and part of that work was actually done by the, the really excellent team that we collaborated with for many years at AbbVie. You mentioned the name Kayvon, and that's, of course, Kayvon Shokat, your doctoral advisor and professor at UCSF. And that's a great transition into my next sort of battery of questions, which is you talked about the topic of your research as a graduate student. And I know that that served as the basis for the programs at Mitokinin. But how did you go from scientist to founder? How did you decide to form a company? How did you find your co-founder? How did you establish the company? It actually came from even before I began my PhD. So I spent the, the six months before I started my PhD traveling in South America. And I was really intrigued with identifying new drugs. So I'd, I'd done my undergrad research in, in organic chemistry, synthesizing molecules like uh, polymers and different things like this. But I, what I really wanted to get to was that sort of like Alexander Fleming moment where you make this big discovery that can translate into something that can really help humans experiencing different diseases. And so a lot of the work I did in Kavon's lab was, was directed in, in that direction you know, identifying new molecules that could modulate pathways. I worked a lot with uh, Yunung Jan and Lily Jan, uh, two very uh, well-known neuroscience professors. So when I made this discovery, Kayvon and I made this discovery uh, that we could have a small molecule approach that could activate Pink One, I knew that it was something big and that we could really translate it into a company. So the first thing that I did was actually utilize the excellent resources at UCSF. So I took this class called Idea to IPO class. And it was all about translating your idea from the benchtop to ultimately an IPO. And so through that class, I actually ended up meeting with a couple of different founders who had been previously at UCSF and others, and ultimately ended up bringing my brother-in-law, Dan DeRolay, who is the co-founder and CEO of Mitokinin, into sort of my orbit at that point. We actually worked on another pitch for a company during that idea to IPO class. But ultimately, I was really more, much more excited about the work on Pink One. 
And so towards the end of my PhD, as we, we got ready to file the patents uh, with UCSF and think about sort of spinning it out, we thought about the different opportunities there. So one was you could try to license that technology off to some other company right away and sort of watch someone else develop it. That was one path. Another path was what we ended up doing, which was to try to raise either a friends and family round or a small round to try to get the technology off the ground. And so that was what we ended up doing. And so through, again, friends and family connections and working with Dan, we were able to get the company launched essentially in 2013. But unfortunately, we were, we were not able to get enough money to run the company separately from, you know, to, to pay sort of salaries, et cetera. So, you know, I talked with Kayvon and, you know, what I really wanted to do was go into the broader neurodegeneration space. So what I did is I started working as a postdoc at Rockefeller University and ultimately Stanford under Martese Levine. And I really wanted to learn more about the biology, you know, neuroscience and neurobiology. I, I spent five years focused on molecular pharmacology, how do you develop small molecules? But I felt like to be a really effective CSO, I had to learn these other skills that would actually lead the translation of the research. So ultimately, we ended up doing, you know, running the company as Mitochondrial LLC as a virtual company, doing some initial experiments to try to, to try to generate some proof of concept data around the work and did some sponsored research agreements with uh, UCSF and the lab of, of Ken Nakamura. Unfortunately, uh, what we found during that time was that the original molecules that we had, that Kevin and I had discovered were not going to work in vivo. So the exposures were very limiting. And this was really the first sort of experience that I had of, of translating something from an academic lab into an actual product. And that the, the things that you look at when you're an academic scientist are not what, what are necessarily required to develop a drug and bring it all the way through. Right. I mean, you have a tool compound that's amazing if you're doing work in dishes in vitro, but there's so many other considerations that come to the fore when you're talking about using a molecule therapeutically. So I guess that's a fascinating question to me is you had the belief that you would be able to create a clinical pink one activator for the purpose of Parkinson's therapeutics, possibly for therapeutics of other kinds of neurodegeneration. And then you found that your original lead wasn't going to work out. What do you do next in that situation? It was pretty obvious that the reason that it wasn't succeeding was that the brain exposures were very low. So this is actually a paper we published ultimately. Not an exciting paper. It says this approach will not work for this disease <laughs> because. <laughs> Congratulations getting that in print, by the way. That's a, yeah. that's a heavy lift. I think, you know, it's, it's important to, to publish negative results because it helps people to understand where not to go. <laughs> oh, I agree with you. We did this so that you don't have to now turn the page. Great. But okay. So you, so you knew the brain exposure was low. Were you derivatizing this original compound or were you looking for whole new classes of molecules at that point? That was part of this preprint we submitted this year in 2023, where we showed the connection between the original tool molecule and then the ultimate next level tool molecule that works in vivo. And that was part of this, this joint publication with AbbVie that we, we submitted and are submitting for review in a peer reviewed journal. And so like I said, the, the biggest issue there was really getting enough exposure and getting a potent enough molecule where it could work in vivo. As I wrapped up my work at Stanford, I was able to get a, uh, an allowance from Stanford to do part-time work there and then part-time work at, at Mitokinin. So that was when we were able to, to really uh, launch the company at the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, when I got that, that agreement signed. And the way we were able to do that was that a, a VC actually came and approached Kayvon, and uh, we ultimately ended up being able to sort of move forward with financing the company at that point. How did things unfold from there? A lot of failure. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, so we, so we started, and of course, we looked at publications from well-known labs and, and said, okay, let's just replicate these results. This can't be that hard. 
And as you can imagine, it was very difficult. And so even just getting, you know, the correct reagents to work and be specific and, and really understand what we we're looking at was very challenging. It was really, you know, through the first couple of hires in the company where we were able to push that forward and, and really make those differences. And I think that was when we built this thing that we called like the mitokinin way, which is being extremely diligent and uh, diving in on every single reagent that you use and really understanding what the readouts are. And then not only seeing it from one perspective, but then going and switching directions and seeing it from another perspective. How, how can you use another reagent to answer that same question? And so we started doing that. And what we realized was that, for example, just working with antibodies, making sure that if you delete the target, you knock out the target, the antibody no longer recognizes any bands. And you'd be surprised how many commercial antibodies will still recognize bands even when you made a knockout of the target. <laughs> I mean, that's lovely that you call it the mitokinin way. I mean, I grew up calling that the way to do experiments. It sounds like you're very committed at mitokinin to doing science correctly. Definitely. And I guess that's something I'm, I'm curious about is along the way, you weren't just racing to find like a safe and effective drug that would be a useful lead compound for this, you know, for your company, but you were also doing science. You were publishing your work you were really trying to move the field forward at the same time you were trying to advance the goals of your company. Did you ever feel like there was a tension between those two goals? In some respect, there's always sort of a tension, but what we wanted to follow was actually the Genentech way, which is uh, obviously a company that I have deep, deep respect for. And they always try to pursue a publication strategy if the business case allows for it. And so I really wanted to follow that as well. And, and I always had a deep desire to be a professor. And so something for me that was really important to, to get it out there and be able to publish it. And so, you know, I was really gratified and excited when we were able to, uh, to push forward into this publication. And again, this, this joint publication that we were able to get going. But yeah, I think overall, the, there was a deep alignment between those two. So it was really understanding more about how the synuclein aggregates could lead to, to, to mitochondrial dysfunction. How do you understand and, and identify lead molecules that can actually progress the clinic? And you know, between those two sort of different avenues, it's really just following what's robust. Ultimately, we tried many different uh, models of uh, different published in vivo models to look at pink one activity and to look at different ways of, of initiating neurodegeneration. And what we found when we came to was this work from Virginia Lee, where she actually won the breakthrough prize for this work. What she showed is that you could take uh, synuclein aggregates from the brain of a Parkinson's patient, and you could actually propagate them. They would seed this altered conformation of synuclein. And this altered conformation of synuclein would actually propagate throughout the brain of mice and other animal models in a very similar way that matched up with what we see in the brains of Parkinson's patients. And you know, I'll never forget because we had tried so many different models. And so finally, we were able to get access to some of these preformed dribbles of synuclein. And one of the early scientists at Mitokinin ran this primary neuron experiment. And so we, we, we put these PFFs you know, onto these primary neurons and again, we had seen so many failures, we didn't really have much hope for this experiment. And then we tried to follow the published protocols, basically spun down the samples, tried to isolate the aggregated proteins, and we ran it on a Western blot. And I'll never forget this because it was just this beautiful Western blot with huge signal. You add the PFFs, you get this huge signal of this aggregated synuclein that really ladders and shows that you're in these aggregates in the gel. And then the control was, was completely blank. That basically said that we can reproduce this work that's been published. This is something that's, that's really clear that's actually progressing. And it's something that we can use as a potential model for this disease in a, in a dish. And so once we saw that, you know, I thought at least that we had a way forward to try to test our, our therapeutics on, on, in that model. Continuing our conversation about the science, I want to take a little bit of a digression here. Diseases of neurodegeneration are well-known, really perhaps the best-known 
diseases of aging. So did you, along the way, as you were doing model development or, or subsequent work in in vitro and animal models, did you make any interesting observations about aging biology per se? Definitely. So there was a couple of big discoveries you made at Mitochondrion. So the first was really identifying this tool molecule. And I'll never forget the day that we ran that molecule. And you can look at the structure in the published work. So we added this carbon and 3-4, it's a CF3 group, onto this one position on the molecule. When we made that addition, it just dramatically increased the, the potency of the molecules and, and, and really you know, helped us out in terms of, of identifying like a potential lead molecule. And that was, a, that was a really big discovery. And the next part of the discovery that was really interesting was the fact that that molecule had no mitochondrial toxicity. And the reason that's important is that other labs in published work had shown that if you screened for PINK1 activators or pathway activators, what you most often found was just mitochondrial toxins. And that was something where you know, there was many of these published results. So we were really concerned that we might have this mitochondrial toxicity with this molecule. So we, once we showed that there was no mitochondrial toxicity, then we really switched over to identifying biomarkers and ways to read out the activity of the molecules. Sorry, I know I'm going off topic here a little bit, but to go back to aging, there was some really beautiful work from Wolf Dieter Springer lab. And what he showed and his lab showed is that the substrate of PINK1 is phosphoubiquitin. Uh, or I guess the, the product of, of PINK1 phosphorylation is phosphoubiquitin. So it's the substrate is, is ubiquitin itself. And PINK1 is shown to be the only known ubiquitin kinase. For those of you who don't know ubiquitin, ubiquitin is literally a ubiquitous molecule. It's a ubiquitous protein. That's where it got its name from. And what Wolf Dieter and then subsequently Wade Harper and Richard Ewell and others showed is that phosphoubiquitin itself can actually become a large percentage of the overall ubiquitin pool during a massive uh, depolarization of mitochondria. Depolarization is what happens when they get damaged and lose function, right? Yeah, sorry, exactly. Yeah, so when, when the mitochondria are damaged, they become depolarized. So it blocks that mitochondrial proton gradient, which is what's used to drive the production of ATP. What he showed, uh, Wolf Dieter, in this, in this aging paper was that phosphoubiquitin actually appeared to be a biomarker of aging. So in age samples, this phosphoubiquitin marker went up. And so, you know, for us, we knew that PINK1 was involved in Parkinson's. We knew that PINK1 was the only known kinase that would phosphorylate ubiquitin, generating phosphoubiquitin. So we thought, well, this is a really interesting connection. As you, as you mentioned, you know, neurodegeneration is a disease of aging. And so we spent a significant amount of time from there on developing our own assays to read out and understand the levels of phosphoubiquitin in the blood, you know, the CSF, and, and also tissues of animals in different aged models. It sounds like you were... You were researching a specific disease of aging, and you made an observation that something that was correlated with that disease is something that accumulates in general over the course of non-pathological aging and might have use as a biomarker in studying other kinds of neurodegenerative conditions or indeed in aging as a whole. So that was exactly the kind of thing I wanted to turn up with that question. So thanks very much for telling the story. Going back to that paper, that was a 2018 paper from Wolfsteeter. What they had done is they had looked at this age and disease-dependent increase of this mitophagy marker phosphoubiquitin in, uh, in normal aging and also in Lewy body disease. And so our desire was to connect that to what we wanted to do. The biggest issue there was a lack of translatability from taking the brains of deceased patients and staining for these different markers and then looking at that in the plasma of those different patients. And that was really the big leap that we made. So again, science is always standing on the shoulders of giants. They're always working off what other people have done before you. But what we did was develop an exquisitely sensitive and specific assay that could measure the levels of phosphoubiquitin in plasma and CSF and other samples. And did you use that in the development of your 
your drug development program? Oh, yes, definitely. The way that we used that was actually in twofold. The one way we used it was to look at the phosphoubiquitin changes in plasma as a pharmacodynamic biomarker. So to say that if we, if we activate PINK1, then we see this change. And that would then help us as we go into the clinic to then say, you know, we've given these patients our drug and we see these changes in this pathway marker. So we know that the drug is getting into those patients and potentially doing something that could help them. And the second way was to actually identify patients who could take our therapies eventually. And to do that, we had to enlist the help of some heavyweight uh, help, which was ultimately the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And so we worked very closely with them from the very beginning. They actually gave us, Kayvon and I, a first grant in, in 2009. That helped to fund my graduate research. And then we continued working with them throughout the years. And they've given us a number of grants uh, throughout the years. And so what we did was we worked with them to get samples from Parkinson's patients. And ultimately, there's a number of different people there who are fantastic. One of them who stands out is, is Shalini, who was someone who helped us to get access to these uh, LER2 cohort consortium samples. And that's part of this publication that we released uh, earlier this year. And what we found is, just to say, just to digress for one second, we got all these samples, they were completely blinded to us. We had no idea which ones were which. We didn't know which were Parkinson's, which were healthy control or non-neurological control. As it should be, as it should be. So we went through and analyzed all these different samples. And through that analysis, we really didn't know what we were looking at. We just were analyzing the samples. And so we made sure that our controls were perfect and we just did our, the best job we could to analyze them. So when we were finally unblinded after all these months of work, we were really gratified to see that we saw also an increase in the plasma level of this uh, phosphoubiquitin biomarker, which really correlated well with the previously published work from Wolf Dieter Springer, which showed that there was an increase in the same marker, or at least immune activity for the same marker in the brains of, uh, of Parkinson's patients. I love this part of the conversation about how the discoveries that you make over the course of development kind of feedback on the development process and give you tools to ask and answer questions that you couldn't have before. And I'm sure we could devote an entire show to that, but I want to change gears a little bit and move the story a little bit forward in time. So you're, you're plugging along, you've got great models, you've got good tools, you're optimizing your drugs. And at some point, a big established company AbbVie and possibly others, I don't know, started expressing interest in your IP. So how did that come about? Yeah, it was a really great story. I just I just want to, for a second, plug AbbVie as just being an absolutely incredible organization. I mean, I feel like they really need the, they really need the support. I mean, this, those scrappy underdogs, they need every, every little bit of help that we can give them. You go, you go for it, man. <laughs> I'll just say that of the different big pharma companies, what I experienced is that they're just a really fantastic world-class organization, you know, and they really focus on the science. It's, it's less about the business of what, you know, what we can ultimately, you know, what kind of money we can make for this asset or anything else. It's really focused on, do we believe the science first? And if we believe the science, then we'll, we'll be willing to move forward with this. But if they don't believe the science, they're not willing to move forward. And so in that vein, Milagros uh, Colon Lopez, a, a former Avi employee on search and evaluation, actually identified the publication that Kevin and I submitted. Then she found that mitokinin, I think from the UCSF website, and contacted us said, Hey guys, so what, what do you, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> Tell me what you, what you're up to. And unfortunately, you know, for the first couple of times we talked through there, we didn't have any real updates. You know, we were just trying to kind of establish models and establish what we'd done in the publication, but like a good search and evaluation person, she kept touching base with us each year. And ultimately as the data started progressing, we were able to get her more excited about the program. And so ultimately when it came time to partner and the reason, you know, we, we decided to partner was really that to move forward a drug into Parkinson's disease is something that it takes a huge amount of, of money, it takes a huge amount of time, takes a huge amount of, of resources to do that. And so to do that as a standalone company is actually very challenging. 
So we really wanted to partner with what we thought was going to be the best clinical organization to push the drug forward into advanced studies. And in the end, you know, we decided that that was AbbVie. And I think publicly available data, you know, shows that they've run multiple different trials in Parkinson's. They're really invested in the field, in the space, and and really want to be there to make, you know, not just the first-in-class drug, but the best-in-class drug in, in these different diseases. And so that's why we ultimately ended up uh, going with them. How would you say that that ongoing relationship changed your, I'm not sure what word to use, tactics, strategy, priorities at mitokinin? Some stuff I can't go into, but essentially, you know, <laughs> I joke now that I, I've sort of done like three different PhDs. So my first PhD was in chemistry, chemical biology, molecular pharmacology, learning how to make, make a drug, have it hit the target. The second sort of PhD, now aka my postdoc, was understanding neurobiology, understanding all the challenges that are associated with proving something in neuroscience that's real and, and creating something that's really reproducible. And I learned that during my postdoc. And then my last like set of training was really at mitokinin, which was how do you translate these discoveries into a clinical molecule, into a clinical asset? And that was where Avi really came to the forefront. So when we approached them, you know, we had some tool molecules, we had some you know, really interesting in vivo data that the molecules were working. But what we had to learn then was how do you translate that into an actual drug that can be dosed in a patient? And people talk about this sort of the valley of death from academic findings to an actual drug. And you know, there's many different pitfalls there that you have to run into. And, and creating a drug, uh, as we talked about earlier, is not just about having in vivo activity, actually. It's not having a drug that, that won't create drug-drug uh, interactions because, as we all know, you know Parkinson's patients are typically on uh, many different medications. So if your medication would be given to them, it would cause their other medication levels, their other drug levels to change, that would not be a good thing. That would not make it accessible for many patients. And so we had to navigate that. We had to navigate how do you create a, a drug that that's going to be stable, you know, can survive in a capsule for many months and is not going to just go bad. All these different pitfalls that we had to navigate that can really kill drugs in, in the development process were all taught to us by the really excellent team at Abbey. So we were able to learn along with these world experts and you know really world-class scientists into how do you actually create a drug and, and create a product and, and, and move that forward to where the FDA will say, okay, yes, you can give this to a human being and not, no, you know, come back to us in 10 years when you, when you make a better drug. So it really feels like they found you when you were super green and that you grew with them and they kind of grew with you or they, they were with you during the maturation process. So that when the time came to ultimately say, you know what, we're not the company that's going to take this drug to market. We're not going to take it through phase three trials. You know, we're not that entity. It was kind of a no brainer who you were going to go with. Yeah, no, definitely. I think their commitment to, to neurodegeneration and the, and the really excellent team in neuroscience at Avi really helped us to push this forward. And, and I think we got to teach them some some cool biology along the way and, uh, you know, some confusing biology and some, <laughs> some interesting biology that we were learning. So we got to definitely teach them something. But I think, you know, ultimately we, we both learned and, and really grew a lot from the interaction. And, and uh, yeah, as I said, I think it's just been a really fantastic collaboration. That's marvelous. And here's the part where my domain knowledge really kind of craps out on me. So you're going to have to help me with this. So I'm trying to get this conversation from the point where you have promising scientific findings, cool compound a great and budding relationship with a big pharma team that you, you can't say enough good things about. And then something happens. And then after that, something happens on October 5th of 2023, you announced that Abby has acquired mitokinin. So can you tell me, can you fill in that blank space in my understanding? What happened between the part that I understand and the, the conclusion that we reached? Like what had to go down in order for that acquisition to take place? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm assuming it's like a 15 second answer. Yeah. So many things. No, I, and that's where I think a big lesson for me is, uh, is to not have a single asset company, right? Because when you have a single asset company, everything's wrapped up in that. And there's, there's just so many different points of failure, you know, really well-documented points of failure for drugs. And again, we learn this and you can learn something in a class, you know, like, okay, if you have a bad polymorph form that's not stable, you're not going to be able to make a drug. And somebody can teach you that in the class. But I actually tended to ignore all that when I was at UCSF. You know, they said, oh, we have to worry about uh, SIP inhibition as, a, as an issue or, or, or solubility or polymorph. And I said, okay, whatever. We're just going to make a good drug that hits the target. That's all we have to worry about. But of course, that's not the case. And, and I think you really learn those lessons when you experience them firsthand. You know? So for example, with these, uh, these SIPs, right? So this is, these are the cytochrome Q450s that metabolize drugs in your body. And again, if you, if you have a drug that's going to inhibit those or, or even activate them and make there be more SIPs, that's going to change all these other drugs in your body. So I think we learned that lesson. And that can be something where some groups are never able to overcome those, uh, those type of challenges. Like uh, this is, again, well-documented that other drugs can inhibit SIPs and then they're not able to go forward as, as a standalone drug. And so, you know, by navigating those, you know, we're able to come out the other side and, and get to this point. But I think that was the part of the learning that was, that was really critical for me was, was learning that these different topics that you learn about, you can take full classes on. There's even entire labs devoted to understanding cytochrome Q450 metabolism of drugs, you know, really understanding, learning the lesson that those are things that are absolutely essential and are, are required to bring a drug forward. And then on the other hand of things, you know, you have to look at what the FDA is going to look at. So I, got, I became very familiar with the ICH guidelines, which are these guidelines that the FDA uses to evaluate INDs, which is this uh, investigational new drug application. And so you have to just go through those, you know, it's, it's both easy, easy and difficult, right? Because you have to go through and just understand what the requirements are, but then you have to actually hit those requirements. And again, the, the reason that I would say that it's, it's risky is if you have a single asset, then any one of those different studies could potentially doom, you know, your program. I'll give an example. So just, uh, you know, going back to the biomarker. With this biomarker, we had previously mentioned it always in frozen samples, right? And so with a frozen sample, you know, you're always concerned that, uh, you know, there might have been some, maybe there was more signal when the sample was fresh, you know, or maybe if you store that sample for two months versus a year, it's going to change the, the amounts of signal that you're going to read out. Or on the other hand, maybe the drug alone could interfere with your assay. And if the drug alone interferes with your assay, then all the different changes you think are dependent on the biology and the drug actually doing something are actually just because your assay is being influenced by your drug alone. So we had to kind of go through each of those different de-risking experiments saying, okay, well, let's just add the drug to plasma. Does that even change the, the levels that we read out of phosphoubiquitin? Thankfully, those answer was no. Or, um, you know, if we take fresh plasma, so, you know, we might have kind of always said we gave our blood, sweat, and tears. Well, we, gave, we definitely gave our blood at some point <laughs> to be analyzed, and we would analyze it fresh versus frozen to see if there was any major changes in the signal you read out. And again, all those things could say, oh, well, you know, if you don't have this marker that can read out activity, then it's going to be very challenging for you to go to the FDA and say, look, you know, we know that we gave this patient this much drug and we see this change. And therefore, that's going to allow us to estimate how much drug we need to see a therapeutic effect. But if you can't do that accurately, then you're not going to, be able to move that program forward. So we had to really navigate each one of those different challenges independently. And, you know, each time kind of say, OK, well, let's 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 go through and do it with our best of our, our abilities. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we were very aligned with AbbVie in terms of making a safe drug. And I think that's some, sometimes where smaller biotech companies can get a bit skewed, especially like in a, in a phase one clinical trial, for example, or a toxicology study, where, you know, if you go in with the wrong mindset, you say, yeah, I'm going to test whether or not this drug is safe. You know, that's a very different question than, 
I'm going to test how much of this drug I can give before it becomes unsafe, right? Those are two very different ways of asking the same question. I actually just had a great talk with Jason Gaswicki about this from UCSF the other day. I was, I was over there for a talk and we were talking about this, this different approach to, to a clinical trial. And I think it's really important that we were aligned on that. And I have a familial uh, history of these kind of diseases. And so for me, it was always, you know, one of the, the things we talked about in the company was we're making a drug that you would feel comfortable to give to your mom, you know, and, and that sort of thing. It's like, you know, you don't want to make a drug. You want to make sure that the drug has the right safety profile and you can give enough of it to make sure that you would give it to any a member of your family. And that's something that we were able to achieve. And I think that was something that we were always looking at. But, but again, we really approached it from the question of the experiment was how much of this drug can I give before it becomes unsafe, as opposed to I'm trying to prove that this is safe, which they're, again, they're very different ways to approach the same question. I want to spare our listeners the details of corporate mergers and acquisitions and just kind of take as a fact that Abvi acquired Mitokinin. But I, I want to ask you, what happens to the entity that was Mitokinin at that point? And I, and I guess I'm looking for two answers. One is uh, that I think I know the answer to, but what what is the company as its IP? What happens to the Mitokinin IP? And then what happens to the people that constituted Mitokinin, the people who worked there? First things first, IP first. We just reassigned the IP to Abvi, essentially, uh, you know, upon the, the acquisition. So you know, we have different patents. And, and when you work at a, a company or a university, you assign the you know, rights of your invention to that company. And so the, the patents are currently, uh, or were anyway, assigned to Mitokinin. And so we just switched the, uh, the assignment over to, to Abby so that they can then execute and, and, and own the exclusive license to those molecules. And then they can prosecute anyone who tries to infringe on that um, at IP space. So that's, that's pretty simple. The second part is, is a little bit more complicated, but in this case, it was actually quite simple as well. So a lot of the the Mitokinin team had had uh, you know obviously been really successful, but you know it was something that you know Dan and I made very very obvious and made very clear that there was an ending date for Mitokinin. That the goal of Mitokinin was to to push out and generate a lead compound that can really go to the clinic, which is what we did. And then you know upon that, that would be sort of the end of the company as we knew it. And so ultimately, we ended up having to sort of you know lay off uh, different members of the team at different time points. But everybody knew this was coming. Everyone knew that if you did what you set out to do, they would have to go and get another job someday. This wasn't a surprise. Exactly. Okay. So it was, it was actually a mark of success that we were getting to that point right. and not failure. Congratulations, you're laid off. Yeah, got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that was ultimately what happened. And so in the end, you know, we went forward with the agreement. And, and I think one thing that we did that all of the former employees are, are very happy about is we made sure that they could you know, hold on to that equity that they generated, that they they earned at the company. And I think that was something that's, you know, as a scientist is is really important to me because, you know, you read a lot of different books uh, about this and you read a lot of books about where, you know, there's a, a recent book uh, for blood and, and for money that they talk about how the scientists were really let go of sort of unceremoniously at different time points when, you know, they'd really poured their heart and souls into these different companies and ultimately were just sort of let go by the management team, you know, who said, okay, we're not doing your, you know, you're not needed anymore. Goodbye. And I think that was something that, that we were really cognizant of. And we really wanted to make sure that they could hold on to that equity that they, they earned while they were at Mitokinin. And so even though if they, weren't, if they were no longer Mitokinin employees, that they could enjoy the, the fruits of all their hard work. That's great. Well, I'm interested in particular about what happens next to a specific former employee of Mitokinin, and that is you. What are you going to do post-acquisition? I understand you have a new venture. Yeah, no, thanks for talking about that. I think... You know, for me as uh, as a scientist and, and founder and entrepreneur, all I want to do is is do it again and <laughs> go back and enjoy so much the journey, and not necessarily the destination. <laughs> In some ways, the destination can be anticlimactic. You know, you've been working towards something for many years, and 
it can be something that's a little bit anticlimactic. So for me, it's really, I want to go back and into the lab and, and do more science. So this week was very exciting. You know, obviously I, I knew it was coming before others did, but I was actually very lucky to have been invited to UCSF this week. So I actually went on Wednesday and gave a talk to the PhD students in the pharmaceutical sciences, pharmacogenomics, PSPG program. And, you know, I got to spend the day on the day that the, this is October 4th on Wednesday, when the day of the acquisition was, was officially closed and obviously announced the next day, I was able to be at UCSF walking around and talking with scientists about the next greatest idea for how to cure neurodegeneration. And, you know, to me, that was a really fitting sort of into the company because it kind of went back to where it all began. And I got to go back and talk with these just absolutely brilliant, incredibly inspiring scientists at, at UCSF and talk about the next ideas. And so what I plan to do is to start another company. And uh, we've already sort of begun that company still in, in sort of stealth mode right now. But what we want to do is, is bring back the best parts of mitokinin. So bring back a lot of the talented scientists, the group that really works well together and go back in with new funding and, and new partners and you know really build what we think is going to be the next big neurodegeneration company, neurodegenerative disease company. And, and for me, you know, personally, I, I really want to focus on dementias as I have a family history of dementia with my grandmother, uh, my grandfather actually on, on two different sides, as well as now um, my mom is actually experiencing that as well. So you know, for me, it's, it's really understanding that and, and bringing the top scientists that I could. So yeah, what I've done is, is put together what I think is, is really the best team to prosecute this. And, uh, and I'm working with with Kayvon Shokat again on a piece of technology uh, from his lab, as well as with Martin Campman, who's from UCSF and was one of the inventors of CRISPR screening in cells and was the first person to run CRISPR screens in the relevant cell types for neurodegeneration in neurons, astrocytes, microglia. The last piece of the co-founder uh, puzzle is was Tom Sudoff from Stanford, who, uh, who actually won the Nobel Prize for his work in looking at synapse formation and firing. Ultimately, I think by putting these guys together, we have what I think is, is the world's best pharmacologist in Kayvon. And we have uh, Martin Kampman, who can help us to, to understand targets, to deconvolute targets, identify new targets for neurodegeneration. And we have Tom Sudoff, who's been in the field for many years and understands that at the root of, of dementias is really the, uh, the loss of synapses that fire in, within the brain. So really understanding and identifying targets that potentially could really treat dementias and, and other neurodegenerative diseases. So I'm really excited to move forward with them and obviously had to wait until everything went through with Abby, but you know, I'm really excited to begin work on that, on that company and to push forward and, and hopefully build uh, another company where we no longer have just one target and we have a, a couple of different shots on goal. Therefore, you know, able to sort of de-risk the development process where we can really have, have a couple more uh, chances to, to make a difference in neurodegeneration. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to hear, obviously, that you're still within the broad umbrella of aging biology and neurodegeneration in particular, where, you know, we do not have any disease-modifying therapies and we need all the different alternative approaches that we can get. So as we close, I want to ask you to take a step back, kind of think back to who you were when mitokinin was founded. What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? And I guess what I'm trying to ask you to do is, what will you tell somebody who's founding a company today? Yeah, I think the most important thing is choosing a project you really believe in and are willing to commit a lot of time to and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to. I think that's, that's the most important thing. And the problem is that different people can arrive at that conclusion differently. So for me, it was really choosing a target that had really good genetic connection to disease and then really just you know, going after it and, and using all tools available to sort of prosecute it. Another important thing would be to not focus on the big press release or to not focus on, on PR and to focus on doing just the most robust reproducible science that you can do 
because that ultimately is going to be what's going to get you there. And, and I think that, again, I don't want to badmouth anybody, but I think there are some, some small companies who, who focus on the sort of big press releases or raising the big pot of money. And ultimately then when they get to the, the phase three clinical trial, which is at the end of the day is the ultimate test of any new medicine or any, any biotechnology company, and they get to a failure there, but maybe they've exited before that. They would consider that a win. I would consider that a failure because I think at the end of the day, you have to do the best science you can, the most reproducible science that can take you to a double-blind controlled phase three clinical trial that's hopefully very well designed and can give you the result that you were hoping for, which is that you're making a difference in, in patients' lives. I think that's a great place to stop. And that's definitely a sentiment that I agree with. Congratulations on your successful exit. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, Chris. I, uh, I'm really uh, excited for next steps, and, and I'm actually, you know, really excited to see more of the work come out from BioAge. I think you guys are a really fantastic company, and I think the the science you're doing is looks really robust and is really making already making an impact in in the clinic. So, but it's really exciting to see that. And I think you guys are a great model for the rest of us to kind of uh, follow behind as well. Well, thanks very much, and I also want to say, in addition to congratulating you on your recent success, that I am wishing you the best with your new venture, and I look forward to having you back on the show in a few years when that's a little bit further along. Uh, Once again, Nick Hertz of Mitokinin, thanks very much. Thanks, Chris. Talk to you soon. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.